you really have to experiment until you found the way to get the government to, to wake up and do what it has to do. And I think it, it is valid to experiment with disrupting public transport as, as one way. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week lists his job title on LinkedIn as a catalyzer for Extinction Rebellion. He believes the government is practicing genocide through apathy, and the only solution is non-violent direct action. He started out sitting in front of cars in Marble Arch and was active in the protests that achieved international coverage in 2018. Controversially, these protests also targeted carbon-efficient forms of transport like the Tube and the DLR. Rox Hanford, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Now, I think you're the first person I've had on this podcast who's talking to me from your own island in the Hebrides where you live entirely off-grid. Is that right? That's right, yeah, and, and I can recommend it. It's actually a lovely way of life. So tell me, when we say off-grid, do we literally mean entirely off-grid? I mean, obviously, I'm talking to you now. I think you're on a, 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 a mobile phone. Um, what, what, what did you, how, how did you get there? What, what, have you, what did you have then and what have you got now? So how I got here was, was I grew up on Exmoor, which is actually quite a remote and lovely place. So I was very fortunate but it still felt a little crowded for me. And I sort of felt like when I had a child, I'd like to bring him up in the wilderness if I could. And so I sort of looked around where the wilderness was and I was very fortunate to be able to find this place, which is a small island off the Isle of Mull, which is a, a bigger island off the west coast of Scotland. And so I can't see the British mainland from here. And there's no connection to, to the normal things like electricity or roads or gas or broadband or any of those things. So one is really uh, thrown back on your resources. And, and as I like to say, in the city, you've got thousands of people working for you without you knowing it, like dust people and people mending the drains and people cleaning the water and people in the electricity station. And here there's no one, it's you basically. So, so if my water stops, I, it's me who has to go and sort of go down a hole and try and get it going again. So that's, that's how I came here. I came here about 30 years ago and I've, I've not lived here full time. I live here full time now, but I've not always lived here full time because there's no school and there's no doctor. And so I've gone offshore to, to educate my children and things like that. And when I first came, I think the, the off-grid thing is very interesting because when I first came, I had a sort of gung-ho attitude to off-grid. And I, I got a generator and I had a washing machine and I had a bread maker and I was trying really to replicate on-grid life off-grid. And it was actually didn't work very well because my generator would keep breaking down and I wasn't capable of fixing it because it was a really complex machine. And I would have to go and get diesel, you know, in my little boat. The diesel would leak and the boat would get really slippery with this diesel, you know, slopping around. And it was sort of a nightmare and, and I'd go away and someone would be staying here and use up all my diesel. So I'd come back and, and it would all be gone. And gradually the things broke and a rat it through the cable from the generator house. And so the, all the lights stopped working. And I just sort of suddenly clicked and realized actually it's better off without. And so I've sort of made the distinction between um, guzzling off grid and frugal off grid. And I used to be guzzling off grid and I'm in no way perfect at all, but I'm, I'm trying to move towards 
through graph grid. So obviously my listeners can't see you, um, but I, I saw a glimpse of the background and you've got, you're in a small wooden hut, uh, the, the hut surrounded by grass and beyond the grass I can see the sea. So what comforts that people like me would recognise have you got and can you sustain off grid and what do you go without as a result? It's, it's interesting and that's in a way my project is to live comfortably off grid. It, it's to show that in many ways it's better. And this goes for cities as well as country. It, it, I try and replicate it. I, I spend a certain amount of time in London. I actually haven't been there for a year, but I do spend time there. And I try and replicate it less effectively than here, but, but I'm working on it there. And to sort of show that we don't need all these massive infrastructure things, which are so damaging to our futures and, and other people's presence. So comforts, it's hard to say. I mean, to give an example, I use, I'm very interested in what I call low carbon cooking, which is how to cook without making fossil uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And just to give you a context of, of why it's so important not to uh, emit greenhouse gases, it's something I didn't know. I learned about two years ago, but it kind of changed my behavior. And, and perhaps your listeners will know, but it's that when you burn, say you say you boil a kettle using gas or, or electricity that's come from fossil fuels, you get one unit of, of energy going into the water to boil it and 166,000 units of energy go into the earth system to warm it up. So you're, it's incredibly inefficient. You know, you're getting one unit of, of heat and 166,000 through forcing and the trapping of heat from the sun actually goes into heating up the, 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 the world system. So it led me to thinking, I just really want to cut down as much as possible on, on burning this stuff. So low carbon cooking, I have a alcohol cooker, a really lovely one. Um, I pour in a, a alcohol from a bottle. I light it, it cooks like an ordinary gas ring. It cooks, it's very similar, but, but it doesn't have that feeling of malevolence now that fossil fuel has. Have, fossil fuels have. I probably use about one litre of, of alcohol for every two weeks. And I have also a what's called a um, thermal cooker, which is in effect a large thermos flask big enough to put a saucepan in. So you, you heat up your saucepan on the alcohol stove until it's boiling. And then you put it in the thermal cooker, shut the lid, and, and then it goes on cooking, basically and it's warm when you want it. And you're better off in the sense that you're not, when I was cooking on gas, which is the only option here, I used to bring in big gas bottles and, and have a gas stove, you can burn your food. Whereas this way, you don't burn your food. You, you get it boiling, you put it in the thermal cooker, you go away, and when you want to eat it, it's there and it's hot and it's not burnt. So just one example of how it's better. There's lots of different things I do, like washing, I just wash in, in a, in a sort of big tub and that works really well. I've had to learn how to dry and it's sort of, you know, it's a learning process because if it's, it's very damp here because the atmosphere is quite damp because we're in the Atlantic. So it doesn't necessarily work in the same way, but once you've learned, it, it all happens. I make bread. I've got a, I've got a mill, a hand-driven mill, which, which I wind with a handle and, and I pour in my grain and grind the, grind the grain. So my flour is always fresh and I make this delicious bread in the thermal cooker, taking very little energy. 
So it's it it maybe sounds a bit obsessive, but it's very interesting and and it is very stimulating because you're you're figuring out how to have a really comfortable existence without harming other people. And looking at the you know, looking at you right now, sitting there with this glittering blue sea behind you, uh, it looks absolutely idyllic. And I think anyone seeing what I can see would feel jealous. But what about in November when it's rained three days without a break and it's dark a lot of the time and something breaks? Are you ever tempted, even if not to sort of join the rat race, but to sort of at least move to a village on the mainland as opposed to an island where you're dependent entirely on yourself? It it's, can be quite hard, yeah. And to give you examples, I I I used to have a quad bike. So I, my project has been to see what I can do without what I don't actually need. So I used to have a quad bike for driving the eight miles or so across a mountain to get to a place where someone runs a ferry in the summer. And I don't do that now. And I walk. And if it's pouring with rain or there's a blizzard and you're walking eight miles to a cold house with no one to have cooked supper for you, you know, it's a bit miserable. And you sort of feel it. Um, so, yeah, I do sometimes feel it. I, I also, in my experiments with what you don't need, and I will sound a bit mad, I, I, I warn you, um, but I've experimented with not having any heating. So my, my thought was, like, I think about 20% of emissions from the UK are from domestic heating. I'm, actually, I'm not, that's not right. It's, it's from building heating. So it's a massive source of emissions, and do we really need it? And so I just thought, okay, let's see if I can experiment with, with getting the right clothes, and possibly I won't need the heating. So I've experimented with using woolen clothes, all my clothes are wool, about four or five different layers. And it's actually so comfortable that you, you can do without heating. As a luxury, sometimes I will light a fire in the evenings, as, as almost as company. And not only that, but you are, I, I now find I can't wear the normal clothes, the, the cotton and nylon that, that, that I used to wear and that most of us wear. The, the heat regulation from wool is just so much better so that you, you don't get so hot and you don't get so cold. I suppose it's because it's designed for sheep. You know, the sheep have the same problem as we do of, of staying warm in the cold and staying cool in the hot. And uh, obvious question, we're talking on a mobile phone of yours. How, where does the electricity to charge that come from? It comes from the sun uh, and I have a solar panel and it gives me, I have one solar panel. I think it gives me about 10 watts, um, you know, on average. So to give you, that's, that's about one low, um, low, low energy bulb, extreme low energy bulb, one, one um, LED bulb. And from that, that 10 watts, I can do my computer, my iPad, my telephone, my torches, my power tools, my strimmer, all sorts of things that I need. But I do, I, in, in, in December and January, it gets a bit tricky, definitely. And because it's dark most of the day, and sometimes it's, it's you know, it's so dim even the day that, that the solar panel is struggling. But the rest of the time, I'm, I'm laughing. So that's not a problem at all. And so this started out as a personal project to see what you could do without. But after a while, you became an activist, much more focused on changing the behaviour of society as a whole. What was it that caused you to make that transition from a personal project to an activist? I've always had an activist side. And 
I, I mean, one example is that there's a, there's a big problem on the west coast of Scotland, which is salmon farming, which is a complete environmental tragedy for, for many reasons uh, in terms of the salmon farmers have to shoot the seals because the seals swim around trying to get at the salmon. And they have to put in smoke alarm type things to scare away whales and dolphins for similar reasons. And the parasites from the farm salmon infect the wild salmon. So the wild salmon are actually dying out and becoming extinct and so on. They have to fish, um, they have to overfish places like Antarctic to, to feed the farm salmon. And so then that affects populations and, and, and um, ecosystems in the Antarctic, etc. So it's a very, very harmful practice. It's got the Scottish government right behind it because it is, is a money spinner. And so I, with others, I, I could see this was destroying the ecosystems around where I, I live and, and all up this coast. And we became activists to, to try and stop this damage and, and try and bring better practices in. And I want to say there are some really good people working in that industry, some wonderful people. So my complaint isn't with them, it's with the, the, the damaging management practices. And we were extremely effective to start with, and we, we managed to stop the industry expanding around here, for instance. But gradually, the industry would see what we did and, and adapt and get legislative changes and so on. And so we ended up not being able to prevail at all. And the industry has captured the Scottish Government Environment Ministry, and it's captured the various regulatory bodies like the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency and the Marine Scotland that are supposed to be policing it, but are just completely failing. And so I was trained as a scientist, quantitative scientist, and I thought, let's take a scientific approach to what, how we can stop this. And I looked at what had happened in the past, and I saw that people like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, had been incredible at just turning a whole society around through something called non-violent direct action, which was to be totally peaceful, totally non-violent, both on principle and out of expedience because, because it's more effective, but above all on principle. And just to just say no to some great harm that's being done and, and offer yourself up to be arrested or, or locked up or whatever, if that's what happens, but basically to be saying, no, we're not going to do this. And so I realized nonviolent direct action was perhaps the solution. And I started looking around to see who else was working the space and, and connected with some people who, who, who were the genesis of Extinction Rebellion before it actually happened. So yeah, so that, that was my route into Extinction Rebellion and nonviolent direct action. And then there was an experience in, I think it was Marble Arch, um, that I remember hearing you talk about on a previous occasion. What, what happened then? Well, that, that was from about 2012, looking back at my notes, I can see I was trying to drum up interest in nonviolent direct action and not doing very well, possibly because there's not a huge constituency here on this very remote island. And I looked on Twitter. I was down in London. I looked on Twitter in, and I couldn't sleep. So it was five in the morning. And someone had gone on Twitter saying, in three hours, I'm gonna sit down in front of the traffic at Marble Arch to protest at the air pollution and the greenhouse gas emissions that the, 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 the government's failure to get to grips with, with urban traffic is causing. And does anyone want to sit down with me? And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna get on my bike and go down there and, sit down and so I did we sat down in Marble Arch 
not a pleasant experience. It's not something I would have chosen to do if I wasn't convinced that we are heading for disaster, complete disaster. And I don't think that is completely understood, and, and not even amongst your listeners, it may not be completely understood how serious the situation is. And we can talk about that if you like, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick to this for the moment. So we sat down. It wasn't, I think it was a fairly new thing to do. Possibly it had been happening in other parts of the world, but in the UK, people weren't really used to it and didn't really understand what it was, that there were these people, maybe about 15 people sitting down in the road. And so they got quite angry and people would, would be walking around sort of shouting and filming and expostulating and so on. And someone came and kicked me in the face. I was sitting on the ground and, and I just got kicked in the face and went over backwards and hit my head and got concussion. And I do remember thinking that this was to me a sign that I'd, I'd found the spot at which the system that is threatening our children's lives, it really is, and it is killing other people elsewhere, the spot at which it was vulnerable. And this, this spot was a, was a place to work to, to move it into a, a benign state where people can, you know, have enjoy their lives and live. And tell me a bit about Extinction Rebellion. I know you can't speak for Extinction Rebellion, but tell me about Extinction Rebellion, because it's an organisation that's very different to you know, most of the names. You know, mo- many of my listeners will work for corporates, you know, bus companies, train companies, local authorities, um, and that we all know big charities like Green Priest and Friends of the Earth, but Extinction Rebellion isn't like any of those. So tell me a bit about what it is and how it works. It's, it's interesting. And I think I, I find because I, I talk now to, to leaders in industry and finance and so on in government. And I find that they are extremely interested in the way we do things, because with hardly any resources, we have actually achieved a huge amount. And I think that's objectively confirmed by independent um, audits of, of Google searches and television mm-hmm. watching and so on. So we have achieved a lot. And, and it is through this interesting organizational structure. So in effect, there are, there are three demands Extinction Rebellion makes. So the first demand is to tell the truth about the climate and ecological emergency, because it's, there's, a, there's a cover up. And I know there's a lot of people shout cover up and there isn't actually a cover up and there are conspiracy theories and so on. But in this case, it is really serious. You only have to look at the scientific evidence or even your own experience to see that things aren't right. And so tell the truth, get that into the public domain. And to a certain extent, that's been successful. And you do see now the papers reporting on climate emergency, et cetera, to a far greater extent than two years ago. There has been a real sea change. Tell the truth. Second demand is uh, decarbonized by 2025. And that sounds very extreme and, kind of ridiculous, or at least it did two years ago, three years ago, except that there's the Paris Agreement, which is law in the UK, and the aim to hit 1.5 degrees um, of of increase in temperature above pre-industrial levels as a maximum, which is enshrined in the Paris Agreement as, as an aspiration, is only possible if we really cut down on greenhouse gas emissions really, really fast. So that 2025 date is shorthand for saying we want to hit 1.5 degrees. And even 1.5 degrees, in my view, actually isn't ambitious enough because 
at the moment we're at one degree increase over pre-industrial levels about 1.1 degrees maybe and it's already pretty nasty what's happening there's lots of you know there's fires there's floods there's droughts there's lots of people being displaced by their crops failing conflicts occurring i met someone uh, recently who described themselves as having survived the first climate genocide which was caused by destabilization of their society by by crops failing basically so it's not nice even now there's a lot of evidence as to what will happen at 1.5 and that's even less nice um but beyond that it gets really dark and this is extremely controversial but very eminent scientists are talking about this the, the carrying capacity of the earth falling dramatically you know which translates into population not being able to support such a big population so we really have to succeed in that and that means we've got a very finite budget of of carbon emissions we can still make to, to fit in below that 1.5 degrees and that really translates into decarbonizing everything fast and how has extinction rebellion achieved the success that it has achieved and uh, what is distinctive about it compared to all the other there's and there are a lot of organizations now targeting uh changing awareness on climate change and extinction rebellion does seem to have cut through in a way that others haven't and obviously we the technique is around nonviolent direct action but how is it able to achieve such a scale of activity in such a short period of time so i think a lot of people were waiting for it i mean a lot of people were aware that things were going very very wrong that the government was posturing rather than acting and something needed to change so i think it it was the right thing at the right time but just to say a little about how it's organized internally there are 10 principles so things like you don't blame or shame individuals it's about a system not about individuals you're non-violent you treat everyone with respect things like that you give other people equal share of voice and and providing your you're obedient to those principles and you're working towards those three demands you have a fair degree of autonomy so that if you want to do something that is genuinely in good faith calculated to deliver or to, or to advance us towards those demands you can do it and 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 it's advisable to talk to some other people to see whether you've you've gone crazy or whether they think it's a good idea but but basically you have tremendous autonomy and so that's that's one thing there, there is a way in which extinction rebellion conducts meetings which is learned from other social movements and other other um people's experience but in effect it's it, it's it's interesting you start a meeting by checking in which is everyone goes around and says how they're feeling you then together name what the purpose of the meeting is uh say it might be to talk about extinction rebellion in in our case today you then build the agenda together everyone can contribute to the agenda and prioritize it and you then speak in order that you've raised your hand requesting to speak and there are there are other hand signals like like if people agree with what you've said they will raise their hands and, and do a sort of jazz hands and it very much streamlines meetings they they move very fast and and it avoids the the situation where meetings will be dominated by by someone who is surrounded by yes people and and the meeting makes bad decisions and then at the end of the meeting there there's a clear focus on action so there'll be action points that different people will take away that they have to do before the next meeting and then there's a checkout where people tend to say something they they're grateful for that's happened in the meeting 
And this works very well as in bringing high quality decision making. And one of the decisions that was taken bringing this to the world of public transport was to target, in some cases, public transport as part of the direct action. And certainly in the world that I come from, that was controversial. So I'm thinking of, for example, uh, uh, people gluing themselves to DLR trains. And there was a view, well, we, we as public transport feel we are already on the side of the angels because an electric train as an alternative to a fossil fuel powered car is already the right choice. And we shouldn't be being attacked by this organization. Um, tell me a bit about how that decision was taken and, and your thoughts on the, the view that you know, public transport was unjustly targeted in this, in this way. So yeah, it's a very, very valid point. And there, there's um, a wonderful table in a publication, not by hot air, I can't remember what it's called, by someone called Mackay. It's actually a bit out of date, but it shows the, the implicit emissions, say, from a, a, a tram or a jumbo jet or whatever, and it, including the emissions embodied in actually manufacturing it. And obviously, many of the public transport modes score extremely highly on that. Um, not as highly as cycling, so there is an argument for for really upping the cycling infrastructure. Um, and and I don't know whether flying counts as public transport or ferries, but they are very high carbon emitters. So so it's not all public transport, but the tube, as an example, is is obviously highly highly benign way of moving people around. So the context is is you're trying to avert a greater harm. So something really serious is happening. Lots of people are dying already from this thing. Uh, an awful lot of people are going to die in the future from it if we don't get to grips with it. The, the task is to avert a greater harm. And the, the science shows that a, a very powerful way of doing that is by disrupting. And what you're in a, in a sense doing, it, it seems very abstract to people, climate emergency and climate breakdown, because they don't see it in their, you, you see it here in the, in the country, but in, in towns, you don't see it so much. So it may seem like, is it real? Is it going to affect me? Because it's further down the line, people feel they have priority. They have other priorities, and people have enough problems as it is to get to grips with, and it is a struggle. So it's not surprising. But unfortunately, people have to be woken up to understand that that this is a problem, and it's going to threaten their children if not them. So disruption is one way to do that. So then the question is, what what do you disrupt? And I think there are, there are different views, like what, what, what we're trying to speak to government by making it hard for government to, to fail to act. And what I, I described government's approach as genocidal apathy, because they, they posture, as I've said, but the, the real policies that will really deliver the change quickly enough to, to, to cut down the emissions aren't actually there if you really analyze the policy mix. And that might be changing even today. Um, Disruption, speaking to government, so what do you disrupt? And I think here is, is obviously the, the question you're raising, is it valid to disrupt the tube? So within Extinction Rebellion, there were a group of people who wanted to um, disrupt the tube because they viewed it as sending a real clear signal to, to government that government's economic interests could be threatened. It, it's, it's very common to say disrupt um, dis disrupt something and be ignored. You know, basically you haven't changed anything. So 
you, you have to disrupt something where you're not ignored, where the papers report it, where government is brought to the table because it realizes that you actually do have some power to exert over it. And so these people said, okay, let's disrupt the tube. There was a tremendous amount of um, opposition within Extinction Rebellion to that for, for obvious grounds, because it felt like it might be disrupting the, the lives of working people who are having a hard time as it is. But because of the autonomous structure, uh, those people went ahead. And I think the questions to ask, I mean, firstly, were they courageous or not? Extremely courageous. It's not a nice thing to have to do, um, to climb on top of a tube train. You're, you're extremely unpopular for understandable reasons. And, and it is, it's dangerous and stressful, you know, so it's not a nice thing to have to do. So they were extremely courageous. I think the averting a greater harm argument is that you really have to experiment until you found the way to get the government to, to wake up and do what it has to do. And I think it, it is valid to experiment with disrupting public transport as, as one way. Um, and then is it smart, I think is another criterion. So was the outcome as desired? Did they achieve what they wanted? And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure that, that the outcome, even, even though it's held up as, as an example of, of a failure, I'm not sure that it was a total failure myself, but I think that can be argued about. But just to say my position, I, I think my position on all this is that disruption is a necessary condition for, for driving the change that we need as quickly as we need it. But um, the disruption ideally should disrupt the problem, not the solution. So if it's up to me, I would disrupt high carbon activities, not low carbon activities. And high carbon activities would be things like, I mean, I'm not advocating anything here, but, but it's obviously things like um, aviation or you know, especially say private jets or, or cruise liners or things that are emitting huge amounts of fossil fuels really gratuitously without necessarily um, feeding through into to, to a benefit to people's lives. Do you think, I mean, I, I know you can't know, but do you think we'll see more disruption of public transport as part of Extinction Rebellion's activities? Or do you think that was something that was tried, as you said, you need to experiment and it's now, that that's not the way forward? It, it's, a, it's a difficult question. I think, I mean, like, like the first question is, what is the way forward? What works? And I've, I think that's a bit of an empirical question. I think there is tremendous um, sort of, it, it's very painful to disrupt people's <laughs> lives. It really is. And so it, it's, it's not a nice experience because certainly in my case, I feel I want to give people what they want. And so I don't like thwarting people, but it is an empirical question as to what works. So, you know, in a sense, I don't really know the answer to your question. I think there is... I, I think, I suspect there will be more disruption of roads, which means that there is sort of accidental disruption, say, of bus routes. Um, I don't know whether there'll be more disruption of, of, of tubes and railways. You know, I, I don't know that. Uh, I can't really say. How does the environmental movement, in your view, think about public transport and public transport operators? Do, do, is public transport seen as an ally? I think it boils down to greenhouse gas emissions and, and biodiversity destruction. So if something is reducing that uh, and, and can be seen to reduce it to, to zero, because it has to go to zero, 
um, it's a good thing. And so then, so it's a question of just looking at the embodied carbon, say an electric car, just look at the embodied carbon and, and the energy it's using and, and see what that means for emissions. I think there is another aspect, which is, it, it's, it has been called energy descent, which is that at the moment we're living, it really goes back to my off-grid frugal, we're living in a society which, in which energy is extremely cheap and we, we waste it, we squander it. So I, I'm not sure that in a, in a zero emission society, we will have as much energy to, to dispose of, which may mean something like HS2, for instance, which is a very high energy um, infrastructure, piece of infrastructure. I'm not sure it will be viable on energy grounds, given what we can, given it will be being run from wind farms and solar panels and will be crowding out other uses of energy. And because it goes so fast, it, it, it actually is a very high, inefficient um, train. So I'm not sure I've given a very clear answer, but, but basically the, the way I see it is we need to cut down our energy use. And there's, there's huge pent up demand for cutting down energy use and, and, and cycling in cities is an example. There's huge demand for proper cycling infrastructure in cities and it's not being met and it's really unpleasant cycling across London and dangerous. So it's a kind of non-problem which just needs people like um, the local authorities and the government to get to grips with and it's a win-win for everyone because cyclists are not in cars, they're not in buses, they, they take up very little road space. They're not emitting hardly any fossil fuels. I've got, we're nearly out of time, but two, two final questions from me. Um, the first is what we can expect to see from Extinction Rebellion as we come out of the COVID crisis, because obviously the pandemic has disrupted the disruptors uh, in this case. So we've not seen much from Extinction Rebellion in the last year, is that gonna change? And secondly, I'm curious about, I had to look at your LinkedIn profile before we before we met, and you're you described as a catalyzer. And I'm just fascinated to know what a catalyzer is uh, when described in the context of Extinction Rebellion. So yeah, in answer to the first question, um, I, there's a lot of discussion going on as to what form, what, what, what is best calculated to, to get the UK government and, and obviously Extinction Rebellion exists in, in 70 or 80 other jurisdictions, to get governments to, to stop posturing and start acting with the speed needed. And they've shown they can with the virus, you know, that huge resources um, have been de delivered to lessen the, the terrible impact of the virus. And I sometimes make the point that, that that's really done to, to protect the old because it's the old who have the highest chance of dying from that virus. So huge, huge transformation of society has been enacted by the government to protect the old. Why aren't they doing equivalent or greater to, to, to deal with a much greater threat um, which, which the young face? So I think it's all to play for and, and there'll obviously be more action from Extinction Rebellion, but I think I can't say at this stage and don't know actually what, what form it will take. So that's that. And then Catalyzer, I think we took the view that nonviolent direct action was extremely effective, approved itself, but it wasn't going to do, the, do it all on its own and that something else was needed too. And that something else was dialogue with people who were taking the decisions. And so we call that catalyzing. Uh, it, it's, it was set up by a few friends and me. 
And what we did is try and get into the places where the decisions were being taken and just challenge them on various grounds. And so the, the first ground would be, have you really understood what the science is saying? You know, the science is saying, it's not saying what the UK government policy is, even now, um, which, which is 78% by 2035. It's actually saying 12% a year or something starting now of, of decarbonisation. Understand the science, that's the first bit. The second one would be, say you're, say you're an oil company, you might have some policies, they might look good, but actually if you take them apart, they're not going to deliver um, compliance with the Paris goals. And so we might say, look, it might be good faith, it might be bad faith, this, you know, it might be bad faith greenwashing, it might be good faith attempt to get to grips with it, but, but, but failure, but it is not going to deliver what we need. So you might be saying that. And then the final thing we would do, which is probably the most important, is bring people into a space where it's not about the intellect and, and, and cerebral, it's about the emotions and actually coming out of your own denial about the mess we're in and the mess the next generation are, are really going to be in and the mess people in other parts of the world are already in. Coming out of the denial about that, it's real, feeling it. And that actually helps people it helps galvanize people into actually realizing that the way they're behaving doesn't line up with their values and and to begin to push on the levers they have access to 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 bring different outcomes and if there's one thing that you'd like my listeners to do you know they're they're busy people they're running bus companies they're working in local councils they've got jobs and mortgages and kids and what was the one thing you'd like them to do as a result of the work that you do if it's only one thing, I would say take the trouble to really understand what the science is saying and don't keep quiet about it, talk about it. Because this is, it, it, this is the... I mean, it's very hard to talk about without um, seeming melodramatic, but, but a lot of people are dying already, a lot more are going to die. This is the potential social collapse issue of our time. Not even potential, you know, inevitable if the policies don't change. So talk about it. It's a silence which is very damaging. And so talk about it with your family, with your colleagues. And I think once one talks about it, one then realises something has to happen. Brilliant. Rock Sanford, thank you very much indeed for joining me on the Freewheeling Podcast. Thank you, Thomas. That concludes the Freewheeling Podcast for this week. Thank you to my guest, Rock Sanford, and thank you to you for listening. If you get five minutes between now and next week's episode, do jump on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the Freewheeling Podcast and give us a quick rate and review. Otherwise, I look forward to being back next week with my next guest. Bye.